One of the things that some of my more longtime viewers might be aware of is the fact that I'm not really what you'd call a fan of horror games. They're just not my thing. Um, I do enjoy horror elements. I enjoy terror. I enjoy dread. I enjoy, you know, being like, oh my god, in like Half-Life or Assassin's Creed or Subnautica or whatever. But, or, or Warcraft. Or Starcraft. There's a lot of horror stuff that I do like, but I tend to not like horror games or horror movies or horror books because I feel the focus is completely different in most of these. Now, I mention this because I actually do like System Shock 2, although I have to admit, this is the first time I've ever played this game solo. Let me explain a little bit. System Shock 2 came out in August 11th, 1999. Half-Life came on, came out uh, November 19th, 1998. And the original System Shock came out in 94. Now, the importance of all three of these games cannot be understated, but my point is, let's just say that there's a reason that System Shock 2 wasn't that financially successful, and Half-Life is one of the bigger reasons. Not to say that it overshadowed it. Well, okay, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. It overshadowed it rather than allowing System Shock 2 to be on its own. If Half-Life was removed from the equation, I guarantee you System Shock 2 would have been a smash success. Or if Half-Life Half came out after System Shock 2, same thing, because it would have been one of the first real entries in that particular era, the, the new era of PC gaming into heavily story-focused, you know, first-person action games. Arguably, System Shock 1 was one of the pioneers of that genre back in 94, back when we were still, you know, just experimenting with story and games in general. And System Shock 2, this is going to sound contradictory, is one of those games that didn't, that succeeded even though it shouldn't have. Now, that sounds contradictory because the game was not a financial success. In fact, its financial failure was kind of terrible and... It, it, this is just another example of Princess Bride effect right here. That's really what it is. This is a game that if I mention this to a group of gamers, there is a very high chance that at least one of those gamers is going to know what I'm talking about. They'll be like, oh, yeah, System Shock 2, I love System Shock 2. I could just bring this game up casually during a stream and have done so many times as an example of certain, ex certain excellent concepts in game design, and people will be like, yep, know what you're talking about. Because it's System Shock 2. It's considered one of the classics now, but when it came out, eh. but that's why I say this game was very successful, even if it wasn't successful when it came out. I do hope that some of the people who worked on these these game uh, know how much uh, adoration and love that this franchise has had from so many people for so many years. Which brings me to another little point, just really quick segue on the side here. As in doing, in looking into the behind the scenes for System Shock 2, I learned a bit about the creation of System Shock 1, which was interesting, but I'm not really going to share it with you. And System Shock 3. Somehow this one just completely bypassed me. I feel like I commented on this news-wise, but system, uh, when I last looked into the System Shock 3 thing, it was just the realm of rumor. Apparently they are actually working on that, and they've actually gotten the original developers and creators, including most notably the woman who both did the dialogue and voice acting for Shodan. Now, that was news as of two years ago. Given a typical gaming cycle, probably within about three or so years, we'll probably see something really develop from this. I'm hopeful, because like I said, despite my issues with this game, I did enjoy it, but... I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit off topic. Let me get back to why I played this solo. So because of Half-Life and everything else going on in, you know, 99, uh, or, yeah, 99, 
I didn't get into System Shock 2 when it came out. I played it probably about a year after it came out, give or take. I'm not sure of the exacts, but I know it's when the multiplayer patch was in. I'm not sure when that came out. Please forgive me. I, didn't, I couldn't find any information on exactly when the multiplayer patch was developed to play a co-op. Let me explain a little bit. First time I ever played System Shock, it was with my friend John, uh, the guy who gave us the name for Noxaith, for those of you paying attention to those kind of things. And John was an awesome friend of mine. We played a bunch of games together. And we, we played System Shock 2, and it, he knew the game a lot better than I did. I was kind of struggling because it was my first time playing this. I had actually skipped System Shock 1 as well. But my journey through it was like, oh, this is awesome. And almost immediately afterwards, I went to play System Shock 1, and then ended up playing System Shock 2 again uh, with a couple of my other friends shortly thereafter. It was fun. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it enough to replay it. I think that says something about my opinion. But I sort of automatically assumed that the that System Shock 2 was a co-op game, because it, it so easily fit into that. Kind of like I said many times about the Elder Scrolls series, and hopefully Fallout 76 will prove this as well, this game feels built for co-op. There's so many weapons that do increasing or reducing damage to, for example, fleshy creatures and cybernetic creatures, and the way the game kind of tosses those types of enemies at you, you know, one and then the other. Uh, The number of skills in the game, which you can't max out all of them, so you have to pick and choose what you're going to go with, all of that leads to the idea that you plus a buddy can go fine. Okay, you focus on exotic weapons, I'll focus on energy weapons, uh, you get, you know, repair, and you get modify, actually, because repair's kind of crap, and I'll go ahead and get uh, research, you know, and then we'll both get hacking. Right, that sounds like a good build. It just fits so seamlessly that I didn't realize it was a patch for many years afterwards. So this time through is my first time playing through solo, and I gotta admit, the game kind of sucks a lot when, uh, sucks more when you're playing it solo. It's funny because I praise several aspects of the game design, most notably level design. They do a lot of very smart things with level design, which I'll be commenting on later in my notes. But the game functionality itself just had me tearing my hair out. This is actually why I look like this. I went back in time. No. (laughs) The, The UI is clunky and slow and aggravating to deal with. The weapon durability... Funnily enough, I will talk about this. From my perspective, I haven't recorded it yet. I don't remember what's going on when it comes to Breath of the Wild as well. But, you know, weapon durability is one of those things. Equipment durability is one of those things that you have to implement very carefully to have it work at all. And I don't think they did that here. Um, the ghosts bothered the crap out of me. Oh, not because they were horrifying. Quite the opposite, actually. The ghosts actually took me out of the scene. Let me parallel to a game I looked at earlier this year, Max Payne, the first one. In Max Payne, there's these comic book cutscenes which are heavily stylized, where actors are posing. They actually got people to pose in costume, took a picture of it, and then put some stylized stuff over it and added the scene, right? And that's how they did some of their cutscenes. Because of the heavily stylized usage of this, this aged very well and is still good to this day. By contrast, the in-game cutscenes have not and do not. They or do not and have not. They're they look old. They look eh. and this was my biggest my, one of my two biggest problems with the ghosts. The other big problem with the ghosts is that they happen. You may or may not be looking at them, and they may or may not be something relevant. Oh, while I'm on the subject, they're also not repeatable. 
So, just to name a random example of something that actually happened to me, if I'm literally running for my life from a rumbler, this is obviously fairly on in the game, and then I happen across a ghost scene, I can't just stop and be like, oh my god, what happened? No, what I get to do is just keep running because I've got a rumbler on my tail, right? So, the ghosts, I feel, didn't really succeed in, in terms of immersion or in terms of storytelling. Especially in contrast to the other thing, which I'll talk about in a bit. The skill issues, I mentioned this briefly earlier. There's too many skills for you to really specialize. Some of the skills are actually kind of crap, especially if you don't have another group. Modify is the biggest example here. If you have a party, modify can be great. And I, I can say this from experience. But if you're by yourself, there's almost no reason to modify just for yourself. It's better to put your points into research, which is basically mandatory, and hacking, which is basically mandatory, which is my point. Too many of the skills in general feel like these are the good ones, these are the bad ones. And, well, I, I don't think that was intentional per se. I just think it was a byproduct of the people not really knowing what they were doing. Oh, that's another thing. Combat in general in this game is clunky and... I'm trying to think of the wording I want to use here. I can't call it slow. There's plenty of, oh god, oh god, you know, moments. I tend to focus on the crystal dagger thing. I can't remember what it's called right now as my primary weapon for anybody curious. But there's so many problems with a lack of impact. I think that's the way I'm going to phrase it. Please forgive me for taking so long to think about that. Because, you know, you shoot someone and, and occasionally you hear, but other than the sound, there's nothing to really indicate that you've done anything. And... There's no feeling of the fact that you're in combat. It feels, that is going to sound like a weird comparison, but it feels like I'm selecting a button, which is then making someone do something, which is then making an impact happen. I feel completely detached from the combat at all points in time. And that really pulled away from the enjoyment of the game, because since so much of this game is centered around combat. It's actually probably the biggest thing the game is centered around in general, is combat. You know, an action RPG. Anyways, uh, these, looking at my notes here, I also have to admit, I'm glad that Night Dive Studios has basically solved the legal issues. I've talked many, many times in many, many works of fiction about how rights issues can lead to garbage. And it's not that rights issues are bad in and of themselves. Obviously, if you make something, you should have the right to say or do something about that. But when I say rights issues, I mean the rights to the thing you made are owned by that guy over there, but also that guy. But he's got a stake in it, too, and so they're going to go into this legal battle, and the result is we're not going to get anything from it. Regardless of what you have to say with your original creation, that's rights issues, and that's what happened here. Until Night Dive showed up and was like... And basically bought all the rights from EA and I forget the other company. And hence we have the System Shock 1 remake, which I've been following loosely. It'll be curious to see where that one goes. I, I admittedly was never a huge fan of System Shock 1. I played it once through, it was fine, and then I moved on. And System Shock 3, which by contrast I'm a lot more looking forward to, especially since it actually is going forward with the story after System Shock 2. But I digress. I've talked about a lot of negative things about this game. I had to get that out of the way because, A, I prefer to start with the bad, and B, I'm going to be doing nothing but praising the ever-living crap out of this game from this point onward. There is a reason I still love this game and still enjoy going through this game for the fourth time through? I guess like four and a half time through. 
I want to talk about a couple things that I liked. Uh, and the, I'm sorry, one last thing I didn't like. I actually forgot about this. The respawn mechanic. As weird as this may sound, I didn't like respawning. I felt like they should have just gone with a straight-up load state thing. You know, you died, so reload a save. Instead, they have an in-universe explanation of you being rebuilt at the respawn station. Now, the way they hand-wave that away is, is pure magic. Like, most of this setting is actually surprisingly grounded and surprisingly scientific. Those respawn stations are just magic. The other thing, though, that weirds me out is you. It, it feels, again, like that amateur thing. Like they had an idea but didn't know how to implement it because there are certain points in the game, notably towards the end of the game, where you can't respawn. You don't have that ability. So if you die, you have to reload a save. But the problem is that almost feels like the same thing because you just die and you go back to the last time you saved, which may or may not be at a reload station. And so functionally, in gameplay terms, there's not a lot of difference between dying and respawning or dying and reloading. Which is why I say they could have implemented this better and done something more with it. You know, implemented different kind of features or have a more severe or even a, a lighter penalty for failure. Something. Okay, on to the good, I swear. I love the way you can buy stuff from terminals. I know this is the weirdest thing to comment on, but it's probably my favorite example of world building in this game. They do a little bit of world building. We learn about how Earth is going and how the UNN basically took over after the results of the first system shock and blah, blah, blah. But those stations, those are fascinating to me from an economic perspective because they present an idea for a universal currency that is tangibly useful as well as perceived useful. See, for example, just to talk about, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and keep this quick, I swear, because I know you guys hate it when I talk about economics. This has no tangible use other than maybe to help start a fire. Like, that's it. This is, this is useless. It is, however, perceived as useful because it's a dollar and I could transact it and get something out of it, right? But the nanites they use in this setting have tangible use. You put them into these replicator stations and food stations or whatever, and they then produce a product for you from the nanites and the energy they contained. So you literally turn your currency into feasible, literal resources or services or whatever. Now, I have further proof of this because if you hack these terminals, the price goes down but doesn't go away. In other words, if you... Let's, let's made up numbers. Let's say I want to make uh, a bottle of... I don't want to put anything branded on here. We'll put this up there. Polar. I want to put a bottle... This is empty. Uh, a can of seltzer water. That's what I want. So I need to put in, let's say, 30 nanites. In, I know that's small, but just bear with me. 30 nanites is what's needed to construct this in terms of literally making it. It will charge me 50 because they need to make a profit because nanites aren't just the material, they're also the currency. Make sense? But if I hack it, well, then it's reduced to merely needing the, the base materials. Hence, it costs me 30. That mean that's such an interesting and fascinating idea to me, and it makes me it's it's actually an economic model I've used in some of my own fiction before, all inspired by a game that came out in nineteen ninety-nine. I love that idea, and I hope they go forward with it in System Shock 3. I have to praise the level design. Uh I, I think I mentioned this earlier. So, and I have to praise the audio design, because the audio design this is some of the best audio design I've ever heard. This game uses audio logs and has no NPCs to speak of. 
Neither of those two things are good things in and of themselves. This is something I've been hammering on so much lately. It doesn't, you, just using a game mechanic or a design philosophy doesn't make it good. New Game Plus isn't good. It's how you use New Game Plus that can be good, right? So I've heard, I've seen too many games, especially come out in the wake of System Shock and System Shock 2, that use audio logs and don't know how to do it. The audio design of the audio logs, the specific stories they tell, the places at which you get which, the, uh, the competency of the, the voice actors involved, all of these things combine to make the audio logs be well executed, not merely a good idea on the baseline. So the audio design of these logs is phenomenal. There are two that always stick out for me the most. There's a lot of good ones. You know, the guy who's like, I will be into a new form. You know, that, that's a good one, too. I don't know why I started, started sounding like Yoda there. But that's a good one, too. But the two that always stick out for me is the guy who's is shooting someone with a shotgun as the other guy's pleading for mercy, begging, screaming. It's just absolutely horrifying. And the final one is um, uh, Prefontaine. Prefontaine, as he is, his, his entire thing is great. But his final one, as you can tell, the man is panicked and barely keeping it together, and he's pushed in, and then you hear the, 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 uh, the teeth come down and crush him, and, st and you also start to hear the teeth grinding him down as it eats him. <laughs> there is, the, the, the audio design of these is, is, Something I cannot praise enough. It's not just the audio logs themselves, but this also is part of the level design. See, one of the things that I have heard uh, complained about this game is that it's too empty. And I've seen some other games basically replicate the same thing without actually understanding why it worked here. The tone and atmosphere of this game is very quiet and very foreboding. There's a lot of moments, and I actually wrote down a few, um, Operation, you get to operations. No, no, I'm sorry. Rewind, rewind. You get to, uh, let's just talk about it. In, uh, the first area you're in, I don't remember the name and I didn't write it down. You're, it's, it's this rotten, destroyed, oh god, everything's broken area, which helps establish the tone early on. But then you go to engineering, and the tonal shift from, from, from between that to engineering is huge, because all of a sudden engineering is well lit. And mostly clean. And there's occasional bits of the many and occasional bits of blood. But for the most part, it's normal looking, which completely shifts the perspective and, and mentality of that. And, of course, um, just before you get to engineering, you fight one of those maintenance robots. And that maintenance robot and the audio logs arranged around there allow you to get a hint of what's coming. And the game does this constantly. Uh, you get a, ro a maintenance robot before you go to engineering. You fight a midwife, just one, before you go to hydroponics. Uh, in recreation, you fight that uh, the rumbler before you, you know the very first rumbler that ever shows up. It's actually, excuse me, the third rumbler, but it's the first one you fight. The game does this constantly. It's why I praise the level design. The layout is wonderful. This would be a great uh, lore run kind of a game. Because it establishes what you're going up against before you actually reach it, and it continues to maintain the escalation of threat while maintaining the same you-are-just-behind-things-that-are-happening-off-camera. This is something I admit I missed out my very first time playing, but on all subsequent playthroughs I was like, oh, because there are other people who have survived and are still... Barking, apparently. There are other people who still survived and are moving around the ship and doing stuff while you are awake and while you're doing your stuff. And some of the things you do changes and affects what they're doing. And you hear some of the consequences of this in the, um, 
uh, in in the whole uh, the audio logs that you get as you're going. I apologize. There's nothing I can do about him. I love that. I love the that feeling of that. You know, that, that there's just something going around just around the camera. It's it's a unique form of horror. The uh, the implied horror is one of the things I love about that, and of course about the audio logs in general. I also love how, as you're going through the game, you know, the operations builds the backstory of the Rickenbacker and the military side of the crew, and how they were trying to help the situation, and how they failed miserably. But then you get to recreation, and then you find out about the efforts of the civilian crew of the Von Braun and what they were trying to do to help, and being more successful in it. In fact, those people died, prob- you know, basically heroically, because they were desperately trying to do everything they could to stop this, even at the cost of their own lives. Uh, again, uh, Prefontaine is one of my favorite examples of that. But speaking of those characters, let's talk about Bronson. I like Bronson as a character because Bronson is one of the uh, more interesting characters who simultaneously makes things better and worse. The way Bron- so Bronson is like, oh my God, yes, this is this is a security problem, and I can deal with this. We'll lock down, and we'll do whatever we have to do. And she basically wages a militia war against her own ship. We don't know exactly how many innocent people she and her people gunned down, but it's understandable why she was taking such a totalitarian approach because the many can literally psychically control people. Uh, keep that in mind for later. By the way, the psychic control thing. So Bronson's like. Blah, blah, blah. But Bronson also was waging a, a large-scale war, you know, a little guerrilla war against the many over there. So when you wake up, the many aren't really focused right here. One of the things I like about this game is the many are not shown to be uh, Bond villains. Now, now, that can mean a lot of things, but what I mean in this case is too often villains in a game, especially Bond villains, just seem to have infinite resources and they can just deploy whatever, right? To use a RTS example, a, you know, it, it would have been easy to have the many be able to instantly build any units they need and to just build 50 ultralisks and toss them at you. But it's actually mentioned in game that it takes so much more energy and mass to build a rumbler that they usually try to focus on other things. That's why there's so few rumblers in the game and why you only start to see them towards the end. That's logical. The many do not have infinite resources. Uh, in fact, it could be argued that the many are already going over their resource cap given how much mass they use to consume the ship, right? And when you go into the body of the many, yeah. by the way. <laughs> so I like that idea that the many are finite, ironically. And as such, they have to, you know, they ha- if they A move over here, they can't just magic up, meh. They can't just magic up a bunch of things over here to fight you. So you find relatively low resistance at the early parts of the game. Wonderful gameplay and story integration, and again, wonderful level design. So, she does that. Uh, Karenchkin, who is a moron, is funny to me. I only bring him up briefly because he basically kicks off the entire game. He's like, oh, there's something down here. Screw the safeties. I want to go. I want to go. And we're all screwed as a result of his action. We could almost singularly point to his one action there as the reason why System Shock 2 happens. If they had followed proper security protocols and looked at this properly, there's an extremely good chance that they would have been like, whoa, hang on a second, and never gone down. Shodan would have never been woken up, and the money would have never been allowed to spread. They would have simply run out of biomass down there and probably starved to death. The end. Happy ending. But because of one rich idiot, we are all doomed. 
There's just something appropriate about that. Anyways, <clears throat> I also want to talk about Delacroix. Or no, I want to talk about Diego first, sorry. Uh, Diego is another interesting example because Diego is probably our primary uh, assistant in our fight against the many. He actually becomes controlled by the many and leaves some horrifying audio logs as a result. But he manages to fight it off. And that's something that's important, too. I mentioned the psychic influence earlier. We know that that psychic influence isn't just perfect. They can't just and have total control over you. There is a resistance to it. There is the ability to fight it, and it has to be exerted. We also know that certain aspects of the many's body inhibit signals, both electronic and psychic. This is part of the reason why you lose contact with Shodan while you're in the body of the many, and why their primary central nexus... Excuse me, I don't think this is actually confirmed, but why their central nexus is so exposed, because it has to be, otherwise it'll be... You know, they won't be able to communicate across the many to maintain the network. In fact, it could be argued that if the many continued to spread in such a wide-scale fashion, they would need some kind of beacon in order to keep the many men hive mentality together. Otherwise, the, the expanding groan of flesh would be terrible. But I'm getting off topic. So Diego manages to resist that, carves the many out of him, literally, and then dies helping you out. And then Delacroix manages to resist Shodan, puts actual weaknesses into her to the point where you have the ability to fight her in the endgame, and dies, allowing you to fight her. So there are NPCs and other characters who matter in this game, you just never see them, adding to the tonal thing I mentioned earlier. Whew. I'm looking at my notes here, I'm debating what I want to talk about next, because... Um... Let's go ahead and talk about the many in Shodan, and then we'll get into some serious theory crafting. It'll be interesting to see this, you know, to think of all this stuff in hindsight once System Shock 3 comes out and actually answers some of these questions. We know Goggles and the Hacker will both be in System Shock 3. That's been confirmed. And, of course, Shodan will, as, and we know that Tommy and Rebecca are why Shodan's in 3. So that will be very interesting. For those of you not aware, uh, the ending was wrong. We don't know why. I've known this for years. Uh, Levine has gone on record several times as saying, they gave us this ending and it wasn't what I wrote and we had so many assets so we had to make it work. So we rewrote the story to fix that, to fit that ending. But we don't know specifics and we don't know what the ending was supposed to be. So I really have no idea what, what to speculate on there. I will say that, as much as I have praised the hell out of this game and its level design, the final level's kind of crap. There's nothing really interesting about it. There's no, I mean, the only audio logs you get are from Delacroix, which is her setting up the defeat of Shodan. And Shodan being like, I am super awesome, insect. And while there's some interesting visual stuff going on, they don't really bother to do a lot with anything that would be considered good level design. All of the shine that was put into the previous levels is just absent. It feels like they're all like, oh crap, okay, chunk, chunk, and they just tacked it on right at the end, and it's like, okay, now let's get to the boss battle with Shodan. Okay, we're done. Whew. That being said, before I continue talking about Shodan and the many, I want to say something. If you have not played System Shock 2 all the way through, let me just go, go ahead and recommend it really quick. I would also say that if they ever make a proper remake of System Shock 2, I might not play it. Because this game actually is really gross, you just can't tell because the graphics are from 1999. Like, I don't want to see a midwife in high definition. I don't want to see the inside of the many in high definition. I don't want to see a rumbler in high definition. Can we just avoid all that? <laughs> Please. Anyways. 
after this long after this long extensive horrifying terrible dreadful alone tonally wonderful atmospheric game the showdown's like you will join me to which you say nah and then you shoot her now that's awesome it is one of the best joke deliveries i've seen in gaming ever because of the fact and i don't think it was it was even intentional based on what i've heard because the whole game builds up to that joke because nothing about system shock 2 is funny nothing it is all serious, it is all dark, it is all horror, it is all terror. It's mind-numbingly terrifying. Those audio logs are legitimately horrifying, even to this day. And then, nah, just comes out of absolutely nowhere. I remember the first time I did this, I actually, this is not a joke, I fell out of my chair. It wasn't like this kind of a chair, it was a much simpler chair, sitting at a cardboard table and my old computer back in, you know, 2000. But, you know, I, I actually fell out of my chair, I was laughing so hard, because that was just like, oh my god! It is, it also forms a form of a release. It, it forms a type of release after all the tension of the entire game. It's a wonderful climax to the whole thing, and I don't think it would even fit in most other games, but it, it it's wonderful in this one. But I digress. So let's talk about the many. Ah, the many... I've always gotten the impression, and I don't think anything really confirms this, that the many don't actually understand pain. That they may or not, may or may, they may or may not literally not have pain receptors. Um, part of this comes from the way that they are engineered, you know, being part of the, the pod that Shodan sent out. But also this, part of this comes from the fact that they seem to be totally okay with torturing and killing people. And it's emphasized that the process of being turned into the many is really, really painful and really, really horrifying. But at no point in time do the many seem to acknowledge or recognize that. The many speak in warm, inviting tones, are very polite, and are very pleasant in basically every interaction with them. Even when you finally kill the many, their last words are to warn you about Shodan, not to be like, oh, damn you. They are in excellent contrast to Shodan in this way. From a purely literary perspective, the many are the misguided extremists, and Shodan is the evil one. You know, more or less typically, I am evil because I choose to be evil, and I am awesome, and I am full of myself, whereas the many are far more humble, and at the same time far more... Well, I don't want to use humble. They are certain rather than egotistical. The many legitimately believe that they are the correct path, just like Shodan does. The many legitimately believe that all humanity would be better if they were the many. This is another excellent way that the many in Shodan contrast each other. The many view individualism as something horrific, something terrifying. To be so alone and so lost, that's unacceptable. Death is preferable to being alone, which is why they have no hesitation about killing people as a mercy. And, of course, <laughs> I'll never forget the line, Have you come to spread yourself on our walls? when you first enter. Oh, my God. Anyways, the many, uh, the many are very anti-individualism. All that matters is the combined hive of, of the collective. And it's never quite emphasized, or I should say, it's never quite explained which exact type of collective this is, because there's a lot of different types. There's one mind across all bodies. There's all minds connected across all bodies. And then there's all minds connected to individual bodies, which are connected to each other. And there's a couple other I'm missing here. 
I like to think personally that the, the many operate with multiple minds connected together. This would also explain the psychic connection thing I mentioned earlier, um, which, uh, which I'll talk more about in a minute. Thus, to them, it's kind of like the Borg Collective. They're, they're, all those drones are individual people. It's just they are continuously connected to the collective and therefore do not and cannot operate as individuals. This is also shown with several of the many's, shall we say, operatives. And further emphasized by some of the, the lower class many who will approach you like, run! Run! Like, at least some of the person, the individual, is still there as the many is consuming them and connecting them to the hive. The many also believe firmly that flesh is right and everything else is wrong. Which is gross. But, as weird as this can sound, is actually a more understandable mindset than it seems. Obviously taken to an extreme, it's just gross and horrible, but hear me out for just a second. Um, holding someone's hand is a unique sensation. Uh, it can mean a lot of different things. You could hold the hand of a lover. You could hold the land, hand of a friend. You know, it's like, we got this. You could hold the, the, the hand of a business person, you know, a handshake, you know, that kind of a professional thing. You can hold the hand of a, of a child or an older person who is, uh, you know, it's just, hey, grandpa, or hey, grandkid, right? That tactile connection of flesh is something that has significant to us and is a significant part of how we perceive things and our culture and our society. It is usually perceived, as long as it is warranted and wanted, to be a good thing. You kind of already see where I'm going with this, I'm sure. The idea that flesh is a good thing is not exactly that alien of an idea if you sit back and think about it from a less extreme perspective. Let's go with the romantic perspective, because that's the easiest way to put this. I mean, most people aren't as big in hugs as I am. <laughs> Which would you rather cuddle at night? A chunk of metal and plastic? Or a person who happens to love you and you love them? I mean, when you think of it in those terms, it's a little more understandable. But of course, that's not taking it to an extreme, which is exactly what the many do, and that's consensual, which is what the many do not do. This is the way that the many and Shodan are connected. Both of them insist that they are right, and anyone who says otherwise is, is incorrect at best, and flagrantly evil or wrong at worst. They force their way upon someone else. If someone grabs your hand in the middle of a crowd and just starts yanking on you, that's not a pleasant sensation anymore, is it? Because it's unwarranted. It's unwanted. It is being forced upon you. Which leads us to Shodan. Shodan, of course, is in many ways the... not the opposite, but the inverse of the many. Shodan only cares about the one. Now, there are two ones she cares about, actually, and I love this perspective. She cares, of course, about herself. She is amazingly vainglorious. And she also cares about whoever's giving her attention. I get the really strong impression that Shodan needs worshippers. And I've always felt that this is one of the biggest reasons why she kept Polito around, and Polito then committed suicide, and why she allows us the amount of leverage that she does. Because she wants us to be in awe of her. To be like, oh my god, you're so amazing, and to just feed that ego, right? Shodan cares about the individual and basically nothing else. She also feels that to not be under her is imperfect and wrong, 
and that the only way that things could be correct is if they are artificially constructed. Now, the words artificially constructed can mean a lot of things, but in this case, I mean very specifically metal, cybernetic, you know, robotic, that kind of a thing. She actively goes out of her way to say how disgusting and awful flesh is. And funnily enough, it's easy to get her mindset, too, if you pull it back from an extreme. I don't want to get too awful, but mm, let's say you've seen someone who's innards right around here the guts i know you can't see it because of the camera but you know down here have actually been spilled out in front of them now that is gross and awful and my, my heart goes out to that person because that person's probably going to die that is a terrible thing and too much flesh is, is a pretty bad thing too there's a lot of aspects of our real life existence that most people just kind of mentally go nope Hell, I probably do that more than most people. I act, I have little mental blockers on most of my life to not acknowledge the biological nature of my existence. Otherwise, I'd be disgusted 24-7 because I'm a walking flashball, and that's gross. Hence, you could see that perspective and why it would be better. You know, that's why I made myself into a lich so many years ago, so I don't have to deal with that anymore. So is it so un ununderstandable to perceive why you would want to be a fully cybernetic, fully mechanical, fully robotic life instead of that? Again, we can kind of see if you pull both perspectives back from extremes, they're a little bit more understandable. Also, I have to point out the irony of the fact that humans made Shodan, who insisted that she surpassed them, and then Shodan made the many, who insisted that they surpassed her. Anywho... I also want to give special credit to the woman who voiced Shodan, which I didn't write down because I'm stupid. Um, yeah, I didn't. I don't even have the thing up. Whatever. She's awesome. She's the woman who's coming back to voice her uh, in System Shock 2. She's already voiced her for the teaser, if you haven't heard it yet. Um, and I think that her and her... The, the audio mixing, the audio design, is one of the biggest reasons why Shodan is such a memorable character. She's been listed in the top lists of, like, top 100 for villains... For the last decade and a half. And oh, I, I believe a lot of that is on the strength of the performance and the editing done in her voice. Because Shodan herself is only moderately interesting of a villain. not Certainly not top 100 material. Until you take into account that performance. That presentation. Which again, emphasizes one of the things that System Shock 2 really is good at. The audio logs. The level design. Right? It's, it's all about executing a good idea well, which they did do with these aspects. I want to talk uh, briefly about Goggles, the, the main character, for those of you not aware. If you pay attention to the dates on the timestamps for the audio logs, most of them end on the 12th of July. Now that's interesting to me, because you wake up on the 12th of July. Now, I can't imagine that's a coincidence, but at the same time, I wonder how much that timeline fully syncs up and which people should still be alive and which ones aren't as you're getting up. It also depends on how long you know you take to do certain actions, but I do like uh, the, the idea that Shodan only got you up because she had no other choice, that she was losing the war against the many and that that was unacceptable. I also have my pet theory about Tommy and Rebecca which will be, of course, most likely showcased in System Shock 3. Tommy and Rebecca get out, and Rebecca's like, Hi, I am Shodan. <laughs> Rebecca is mentioned earlier as being sick, and then they escape. 
it isn't that far out of bounds for me to think that Rebecca hit one of the auto docks. And Shodan, who has already shown a propensity for just in case I fail, might have downloaded a copy of herself into Rebecca, into some new uh, hardware that was installed in Rebecca, to ensure that she escaped should the many win. Because remember, she was losing right about that point in time. So that just makes perfect sense to me as well. It would also mean that the Shodan we fight in System Shock 2 is actually technically a different entity than the one in 1, and if I am correct about my theory, would make the one in 3 a different entity than the one in 2, since each of these are copies, but I digress. Why is Goggles immune to the psionic abilities of the many? We can hear them. They talk to us plenty. They even show us a vision of the high very early in the game, and in the second area, actually, as kind of an info dump slash foreshadowing. Also, colonoscopy gross, blah, blah, blah. Moving on. I know about the video. Bleh. Moving on. <laughs> I find myself really debating that, because to my knowledge, no answer has ever been given for that question, why we were immune to that influence. Now, by my reckoning by all the theory crafting I've done with friends and online, there's three general categories of answers for why it is we're immune to this. Number one is the most obvious. We're, we just are. We're not the only one. Um, I wrote down his name. What's the other guy? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, God, I can't read my own handwriting. I, I can't read my own handwriting. Uh, Bayless? Bayless? I can't think of his name. There's another guy who's mentioned in the audiologues who is immune to the many psionic power. And... Some people just are. Some people are just either genetically predisposed or happen to have that ability or whatever. And I do kind of like the idea that we are just immune just because. It would make perfect sense that Shodan would want one of those people who is proven to be immune to be her agent. Uh, which brings me to the second theory. That Shodan specifically put uh, stuff in us, in the, in the incredibly illegal cybernetic uh, implants, in order to make us immune to it. Which presumes that can be done, but may or may not be true. I don't know. The third possibility is a little bit different. The third possibility is that we are not immune, merely resistant. And this would also explain why we are in such a rush throughout the course of the game to stop the many, and why we are willing to be allied with someone like Shodan, who fairly, you know, about halfway through the game, openly reveals herself as Shodan. And freely admits, yeah, I don't give a crap about you, and your species is pathetic, and you're pathetic. Get on it. She's obviously not on our side, and obviously is willing to wipe out humanity. But if we are not immune to the many, and in fact are starting to fall into their sway, we would thus be more inclined to be in a hurry to get rid of the many before we start dealing with showdown. It's also possible that the player character we play... I've, I've heard this theory, but I don't agree with it, which is why I'm mentioning it as a fourth option. That we are literally a pawn of Shodan. That we have no will or whatever. You know, <clears throat> will you kindly go defeat the many? That kind of a thing. I don't agree with that. Mainly because of the ending. If that was true, none of our ability to resist Shodan should exist, unless we're going to really hand-wave some of uh, Delacroix's... Delacroix's influence onto this, which I suppose is possible, but I don't buy that one personally. As ever, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on exactly why you think Goggles is so resistant to this. And, um, I also am interested in what you think Goggles' identity is. I've heard two predominant theories. One is that we're guy whose name I wrote down and don't remember. 
I want to say Bayless. I, that's what that looks like, but I don't remember his name. He's only mentioned like twice. Uh, the other guy, the psionically resistant guy, it's possible we are a him and we play as him as we're going through. Or one of the other biggest theories I hear is that there's a soldier who shares the same model as us who commits suicide at a certain point in the game and that we are that guy. I'm not sure what I think of this. I'm not 100% sure which theory I subscribe to there. If I'm being honest, I think that the writers didn't quite think that through and just made us another guy, and thus there's no answer to that. But I suppose we'll find out in System Shock 3, or maybe we never will because it's not important. I hope you've enjoyed me rambling about this excellent game with flaws, and uh, I hope I will see you guys next time.